0: It you've got two choices. You can either keep pretending like nothing bad's ever gonna happen to you and then when it does, you're saying, "Uh uh-oh, or you can get ahead of what's coming so that when it does, not if, you're ready for it and you're sitting pretty, sipping on Mai Tais next to the pool, working on that Caribbean suntan because you got it covered. So folks, it's time for you to learn the truth about money. It's time for you to take back control of your money so that you are ready for what's about to happen. By doing that, you're setting yourself up for absolute success. No matter what comes your way, you're ready for it. And that's what I want for you, and I wanna help you with that. So go to chrisnoggle.com and sign up for the Wealth Webinar. We do them every Wednesday at 1 p.m., and you need to be there because it's time.
1: For over 90 years, we've been crash testing our cars in the tireless pursuit of automotive safety. At Volvo, safety's been first since 1927. We've saved millions of lives with the invention of the three-point seatbelt in 1959. At Volvo, we've made driving safer for you and them. Visit safety.finleyvolvo.com to learn more. So they say if you give
0: a man a gun, he'll rob a bank. But if you give a man a bank, he'll rob everybody. Estate entrepreneurs where it is truly a win-win solution. This community is a place where you can connect with other lenders and other borrowers and the end results, massive growth for you. You get to build your real estate empire and you get to do it solving other people's problems. So if that sounds like a place you want to be, well then join us. Go to privatemoneyclub.com forward slash Kelly. And if you want 500 bucks off, just add the code Kelly500 and I'll knock 500 bucks off the premier membership we'll see you on the inside
2: welcome to the Kelly Cardenas podcast where attitude is everything on today's show I am so honored to be able to have an absolute legend joining us um, my I, a quick little backstory here is my mom and I used to sit uh, my mom was my favorite woman in the world until I got married and then I had a daughter and so she you know had to move in in, in ranks But my mom and I would sit when when I was a kid, and we watched this show. Most of you know what it is. It's called Seinfeld. And um, we would belly laugh. There was so much joy. And when we were done, our stomachs were just, I mean, I almost did an ab workout, almost. I've never done one in my life, but um, at that point, I, I felt that I did. I lost my mom in 2018 and when I did, the little bit of memories that I had every time that I would hear that slap bass of Seinfeld, I would think of my mom and I would think of her joy and I think of the lessons and I'd go back and then i came in contact with this genius who actually wrote the theme song and composed the uh, theme song for seinfeld in addition to 75 uh, tv series uh, 44 themes this is an absolute legend include uh, he, he composed and wrote and uh, in including um seinfeld and will and grace and many many others he's one of the most humble guys in the world and he's willing to work through Technological difficulties, which we had before we started in this morning, to be able to uh, to record. But it is my honor, my pleasure. When I reached out to him, this is one of the most famous composers in all of Hollywood. And when I reached out to him and told him the story of my mom, it was unbelievable because he responded right away and said, "I would love to be on the show." And so it is my honor and pleasure today to be able to have Mr. Jonathan Wolf, the composer, the Seinfeld music guy, who, again, like when I was growing up, or if you, you growing up, if you heard this, if went, every time that you heard this theme, you knew exactly what was happening. You knew that there was going to be an episode that took you to a completely other place, and you were able to escape. And uh, it has been uh, unbelievable to be able to connect with this man. I believe I've got him now. Welcome to the show, Mr. Jonathan Wolf. Thank
1: you, Kelly. I really appreciate you having me on. I had a little technical glitch while you were talking, but I'm so glad to hear that you have warm, fuzzy memories of Seinfeld and uh, that association with your mother truly means a lot to me. Glad to be here.
2: Jonathan, you you told me when I was I was telling you that I read your resume, and it took me like six weeks, because it was it was the list so long of TV shows, but there was a response that you had uh, for me, And please talk to me about this and, and share that little story because I think that it brings it down to the fact that you're a human being and not a superhero.
1: Well, yes. I was the composer on 75 primetime network television series. And that sounds like a lot of success, but most of those shows were not winners. You can chart the course of my TV music career by that long trail of mushroom clouds behind me (laughs) and blast craters. At each one of those disaster sites, I had to kiss a frog, which exploded. It's, if you look carefully at that list that you said you looked at, it's a long death list of failed show titles. For example, if you look on, and this is available on my website, if if anyone wants to look, SeinfeldMusicGuy.com. If you look under ABC network, it's a good thing that I had a couple of strong earners, like Who's the Boss? and The Hughleys, because man, that awful list of theme songs I wrote for Loser series on ABC? <laughs> Ted Harbert and Steve McPherson probably should have had me whacked just to stop me from writing more of them. It's a good thing Tony Danza liked me.
2: So what was the beginning? What was the what was the one that kind of, you know, I think that there's never any big breaks, there's always a bunch of little ones. Start with your little breaks and uh, take us through that journey, especially in Hollywood, because we're all so excited about this. And and it's, it's intriguing, Jonathan, what you do.
1: Well, when I first moved to L.A., I was 17. And from the time I arrived in L.A. for the next 10 years, that was 76 to 86, my career was a seemingly scattered patchwork of overlapping assignments. I was a multi-purpose utility tool for musical chores for the studios. It was good that I had training and a wide set of musical skills so that I could accept any assignment that even smelled like music. I was mostly a studio musician and an accompanist, arranger, recording engineer, an orchestrator, music producer, music copyist. I was a conductor for hire. I did sketch piano work. I was a music editor an electronic sound designer. I was a songwriter for hire. It didn't matter. I took that job. I slept very little. Uh, I was highly motivated to work instead of sleep. And that was the first 10 years. Also, I did on-set chores for the studios. I would be a production music consultant or an actor's coach for musicians and singers. I would—I was a terrible screen actor myself, uh, usually playing myself. <laughs> uh, they would, you know, when there was a character for a young pianist, I would do that. Um, and I did a lot of off-camera recordings on set. For example, uh, for the TV show M.A.S.H., I was Father Mulcahy when he played piano badly. And I, whenever there were singers singing on camera, I was often the studio musician they would bring in for that. It was just a really good way to... <laughs> We seem to have
2: some uh, tef- technical difficulties with uh, with Jonathan back and forth, but um, you know, as we as we go, we're going to bring him back on. Um, but it's incredible to be able to see and what I'm hearing him talk about, and I want to I want to help you to be able to focus on this. Is that, um, Jonathan? I believe I have you back, and what I was saying to the audience right now is the the amazing thing about what I heard you talk about was that you were willing to do whatever it took to be able to get to the point where you wanted to. Where did you get that type of mentality, especially at 17 years old? Because most of the time people say, no, I'm this. I won't accept anything less than this. And that causes them to miss opportunities.
1: Maybe it was because my early years, my early training was in so many different arenas, arenas. I wasn't really sure what. I was, and I was grateful. I felt blessed that these studio folks trusted me with those assignments. Um, so I was grateful for the work. And by the way, it was very lucrative. I made a ton of money doing all these sessions and other jobs for the studios. So it was it was a good way to work, but that is not a well-managed career. Because every time the phone rang and I'd answer it, someone on the other end of the phone would tell me where to go and what to do when I got there. And that's not a sustainable model. I had no idea what the trajectory of my career was, where I was going, how I was gonna get there. I had no control over it. So after about 10 years of this, I started reading books, lots of books, about how to start a business and how to grow clients. And um, I started putting together what I was missing, and that was a business plan. Wow. A business plan has to be clear, concise, has to have stated goals, has to be practical, sustainable, And yet flexible enough so that if surprise opportunities arise, you're flexible enough to take advantage of that new landscape. So that's what I did. I decided, what did I really want to be when I grew up? And at this point I'm 27 and I had had a taste of composing assignments and songwriting assignments. And I really liked that. Mm -hmm. So I, sold everything I owned. I sold, I had two houses that were full of studio equipment. I sold them both, sold all the gear, sold all my investments that I had earned over those last 10 years. And I bought a building, a commercial building in Burbank, California, on Burbank Boulevard, right in the heart of Studio District, right where I wanted to be amongst the studio people And in that building, I built for myself the job that was not not otherwise in view. I wanted to be able to create great music using the best, most cutting edge equipment in a beautiful setting, working with LA's finest studio musicians and singers. I built it in that building and then I sent letters Uh, This was uh, 1987, so there was no email. I sent letters with stamps and envelopes to each of those people who had been so kind and generous and supportive and said, thank you for trusting me with your assignments. Now stop that. I'm no longer available for that kind of work. I am a composer. Here's my new studio Let's do business. And then I held my breath because I may have just nuked the last 10 years of my life, scorched earth, but that's not what happened. As those letters arrived at their destinations.
2: As those letters arrived, imagine this guys, imagine what Jonathan is talking about, about willing to taking the time and being willing to send out letters, letters that you can imagine, I mean, for most of, or some of you guys out there listening, you don't even know what a letter is. And uh, Jonathan, what I was just saying to the audience is, is it's amazing because you were willing to send out a letter that takes two to three days to get there and then takes two to three days for them to respond, actually write it out, and then two to three days. So you're talking about, you know, a week at, at, at best that you would get a response, Keep going through this. You just sent the letters out and you're holding your breath waiting because you just could have nuked your whole entire career over 10 years.
1: Just to clarify, I'm not that old, Kelly. There were telephones. Uh, So (laughs) when they got the letters, I got a bunch of phone calls and mostly they all said the same thing. They said they kind of shrugged and said, gee, that's too bad. You're a really good utility guy. Okay. And they started throwing me little assignments, uh, songwriting assignments, special material assignments, things where a composer didn't work out. And that's how it began. I started getting some traction. And a lot of these early assignments were terrible shows, but that's okay. I have heard you speak, Kelly, about the importance of relationships. Such a wise and timeless topic. And for me, all those relationships that I had built over those years of doing chores served me well at this time. And even doing the terrible jobs, I made relationships with these folks that were gonna arc well beyond the terrible job. Eventually, some of these people were going to have good jobs and they would remember the relationship. So I would say you know people ask musicians wonks like to talk about equipment. Oh what guitar did you do? What keyboard did you use and what my most viable asset was those relationships. What was the
2: first one that um, you saw and you you knew hey this is this is going to be this one's going to gain a little bit of traction, or do you see that beforehand?
1: Uh, you remember, I talked about kissing frogs. Mm-hmm. You only kiss a frog if you think it's going to turn into a prince. <laughs> so I would approach each of my assignments as if, hey, maybe this is the one. I'll write the theme for a show that will become part of Americana, part of the fabric of television culture. Um, And, of course, that's usually not true. In 1982, before I'd sent the letters, one of my, it started off as a chores assignment. I had been hired to be the arranger and producer of music for a show called Square Pegs. The composer was a guy in New York. but because of communication and scheduling confusion, he was unaware that he was supposed to be working on the show. It was not his fault, we later found out. I'm there waiting for this music to arrive and it never arrived. And so I just stepped up, took over, wrote the songs, wrote the music for the first episode. And by the end of it, the producer had said, hey, you're now the composer for Square Pegs. And that was my very first credit composer assignment on network TV. So, Jonathan, talk to us a little bit. Let's go to the
2: relationship side because I think a lot of times people uh, work transactional, especially in today's fast-paced world. They'll look and they'll meet a person and say, okay, what can I do right now and, and solidify a relationship? And it almost freaks them out a lot of times when I'm in environments and they'll say, what do you do? And I'll just ask them a question and because I want to get to know the person and get to know the person before I ever need them. Can you talk about that? Because you are a master at relationships, especially navigating Hollywood. The way that you have been able to do in navigating Hollywood, it's probably one of the most desired areas. I mean, it's 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 one of those things where so many of us, so many of us, are so intrigued on how to be able to um, navigate a, a Hollywood situation. And the more and closer I get in that scenario. It's all about relationships, and in the event that you come transactional, you don't
1: last very long. Can you speak on that? It is true. I'll tell you a little story. During my chores years, when there was an industry strike, it is now, for people listening in the future, it's now August 2023, and there is right now an industry-wide strike of the writers and actors but that's not something new in the 70s and early 80s that happened a couple times and when that would happen i would take my thimble full of talent in my bag of tricks and go on the road and do concert tours usually as a conductor sometimes i would play in rock bands or whatever and i kind of settled into working for vegas artists where I could write shows, conduct the shows. And even after the strike ended, I would work all day in the studios, catch the 6 p.m. flight to McCarran. You're in Vegas, right? Uh, I was. I used to live in Vegas. You were? Yeah. Okay. Catch that 6 p.m. flight from Burbank to McCarran, conduct the early show, write a little bit in between conduct the late show, maybe take a nap, if my writing is finished, take the 6 a.m. flight back to Burbank. I did that for three years, by the way. Two of my Vegas acts, getting to your question, Dinah Ross and Tom Jones shared the same opening act. He's a comic, a guy named George Wallace, brilliant comic, but he was just an opening act at the time. But I made friends with him and I, we talked about him singing little songs. So I wrote little songs for his opening act and I would come out early and accompany him just for for free and for fun. And we became friends after that. Many years later, George Wallace called me and told me to expect a call from his buddy, Jerry Seinfeld. It turns out in real life, Jerry Seinfeld has a best friend named George. It's George Wallace. Oh my God. So I got a phone call from Jerry Seinfeld. To your question, it was all about that relationship that I had earned with George Wallace. Earned relationships are way more valuable than those that you get because I don't know you were born into a famous family, and that's how I met Jerry, and that's how I got hired to be the composer for Seinfeld. So, oh it's it's incredible, Jonathan. So,
2: t- take us to that that point of you know with Jerry, you meet him, he talks to you about composing for the show do you watch the pilot do you watch the show get the feel for it and then make the music in the feel of the show I mean or or is it do you do it separate how take us through your process
1: I was not the first composer for Seinfeld the pilot had been done by another guy and he did an okay job um, nothing but respect even the best. MLB batters sometimes ground out. And this guy just did not swing hard enough at it. So I watched the pilot and I gave Jerry my opinion on it. The opening credits for what was then called the Seinfeld Chronicles was Jerry doing stand-up.
2: Jerry doing stand up is one of the most iconic. And uh, when Jonathan talks about it, he, he talks about it being Americana. It is it is weaved into the fabric of of American TV culture. And you know to be able to see this has been un, unbelievable. Um, so the Seinfeld Chronicles. He's he starts off with the monologue as far as the the stand up. Take us through that.
1: The most important audio for that has to be Jerry's voice. We have to hear his voice telling jokes. Theme music in the late 80s was melodic, a lot of silly lyrics and sassy saxophones. Guilty, by the way. I created a lot of that kind of music, but as I told Jerry, it's not gonna work here. So I pitched him this. How about to accompany the organic sound of your human voice telling jokes. What if I use human sounds that organically come from my mouth, tongue, lips? Like this. (coughs) And I had his attention. As you know, Kelly, there's a point at every pitch meeting where you gotta grab their attention. There's a moment where you gotta put the go button in front of them and say, push the button. And that was the moment for Jerry we went, wow, that's wild. Because at the time, sampling technology was in its infancy. Oh. Nobody was really using it for practical purposes yet. You know, there was, you know, singing cats and things like that. But I really wanted to put it to use uh, by sampling my tongue and lips. and So I said, come on over, Jerry, it was a Saturday. I was alone at my office and he came over and brought video of his standup. And I built this little piece of music, starting with that percolating rhythm, that percussion, the mouth percussion that blended well with his voice. I noticed that his delivery, like a good rapper or storyteller has a meter, a pattern to the way they deliver. You probably use that technique when you're doing public speaking. I do. And I noticed that his comedy had a certain meter to it. And I put a clock on it in my head. It was about one ten, And I said, okay, that's going to be the tempo of the Seinfeld theme music, your tempo. And the slap bass that has grown into the prominent identifying signature for Seinfeld. I use that kind of like punctuation for his jokes. Like in old vaudeville, the drummer would hit rim shots after a joke so the audience would know when to laugh. I created a bass line so simple, so basic, so sophomoric that it did not require meter to hold water. It could stop and start whenever it wanted. And in that way, I could weave the bass lines in and out of his jokes in his monologues to punctuate and to build along with his monologue now i knew that this was going to commit me to creating a new piece of music a bespoke timed piece of music for each monologue to fit the timings of the monologue and his individual jokes and punchlines. and if he did choreographed hijinks which he does Uh, that I would fill that with base silliness. And in that way, the Seinfeld theme was built to be modularly manipulatable. The architecture of it was open so that I could fit it to each monologue. At the time, there were only four episodes. (laughs) This was not a hit show. Four episodes is an insult. It's not really a job, but he's a friend of George Wallace. So of course I'll do your four episodes and I'll create special music for each of those monologues. Did that answer your question about that phone call? Oh my gosh. Well, but take us to this too, because this is where, I mean,
2: Jonathan, this is where we start to ask the question. If you had to craft a specific if you had to craft if you had to craft a specific piece of music for every single monologue and the show starts to take off how are you able to do this? And take us through that process because most of the time you when we would hear like Magnum P.I., I could hear it in my head right now. I hear Magnum P.I. And it goes, it's the same theme music every single show. I think of Who's the Boss, who you were talking about. It's it's the same beginning. But you're saying with Seinfeld it had to be adjusted every single time to be able to make,
1: to hit his jokes? The answer to your question is I got better at it. <laughs> I got faster at the timings. I got better at manipulating the samples. I got better at it. And technology was exploding at that time. There were uh, timing programs for music that were up and coming. And I was able to make use of that as a tool for efficiency to create those monologues. Uh, Practice just like anything else. The first time you try something, and in this case, it was a new species of music. It's gonna take a while. I stumbled. But you know, after I'd done you know, five, six episodes, I was pretty fluent. And what used to take me hours would take me minutes.
0: Mm.
2: Can you talk about the the processes this way? Because it's one of those things where a lot of times um, when you do something like this, your genius becomes normal to you and then somebody else comes into the, the, the craft and they see it and they're like, oh, that's a superpower. But you see it as, uh, I mean, that's on my shelf. Like I, I've done it before, I've done this thing. Can you talk to the importance of having systems
1: in your business and how to be able to grow it? Businesses have to grow or they die. I, as a composer, was a small business person, just like you are a business person. You've got a number of different enterprises going on. You're a public speaker, you're an author, you've got the salons, you're a style guru. I only had one trick, Uh, music. And then I narrowed that down, music for television. then I narrowed that down, music for half hour televisions because If I wrote a theme for an hour-long show for an episode, for a series, and worked on that hour-long show, and I did work on a bunch of hour-long shows, um, that's only one theme of mine that'll play during that hour. But if I'm doing half-hour shows in that same broadcast hours, Mm. two themes, twice the royalties. So I really focused hard on those half-hour shows, and I avoided the one hours, first of all, they were a lot more work. In my chores years, I was in the rotation and did special material for, this may be before your time, Kelly, uh, late night TV used to be dominated by nighttime dramas. Dallas, Not Landon, Falcon Crest. Uh, there were a bunch of them, and I was on all of them. So it was. It was good training. Uh-huh. It was great. I was on a podium several times a week conducting orchestras. Uh, on okay, here's a confession. You ready for a confession? We're getting off topic from your question. I like Where, it. I like off topic. This is great. Remember the series, Not Landing? Of course. I have the distinction of possibly being Hollywood's worst actor ever i was already doing music for the show they knew me they liked me so when a part was written in a recurring regular cast part for a piano player they said oh hey wolf and i said you know i'm not really an actor that's okay you're great
2: so <laughs> not landing i mean it, it's it's amazing because what i'm hearing from jonathan and as you guys hear it is he is willing to do all the little things to get to the point where he gets to do what he wants to do. And this was, uh, Jonathan, this was a a story that I, uh, one of my mentors, uh, John Paul uh, DeJoria, he said, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you keep doing the things that you don't want to do until you get to do the things that you want to do, right? And so these are massive things. And I mean, as you're speaking about it, these are interwoven in the fabric of it. And again, you're just, you know it's just who you are but go back to knots landing the worst actor in Hollywood.
1: i didn't say i'm you said it i didn't say it but i'm oh, repeating it's it true. i'm repeating <laughs> it. um so i mentioned that i had done a, a series called square pegs and a brilliant director named kim friedman directed that and she called me one night at home because that's where telephones used to be is at your home and I thought she was calling it something about Square Pegs, because there was a lot of music on Square Pegs. And she said, No, I'm calling you because I'm joining the rotation of directors for not Landing. And the producers are taking me through the Bible of the show. And, you know, they're telling me about the characters and the arcing storyline. And we got to one character, and they said, Oh yeah, him. Don't try to direct him. He just gets worse. <laughs> And she thought I would enjoy knowing that that's what they tell the directors about me. And I just said, none taken. And I finally figured out that it didn't matter what came out of my mouth, whether it was the correct words or not. They would go, print. (laughs) Because they knew if they went more, they did another take. I would just mess it up more. So that was kind of a funny job for one entire season. Uh, The good part of it was there was the actress who played the singer, who I was, her sidekick, uh, was just excellent. Her name at the time was Lisa Hartman. She is now Lisa Hartman Black. And it was a tough job for her because We'd show up and they'd say, Oh, and they're rehearsing something in the club. And I would write a little song there, show it to her, and we would record it live on camera right there, which is outside of the wheelhouse of most actors. Mm-hmm. But she never complained. She stepped up, she did it. And it was so it was kind of fun for me. I got to write little ditties. And uh, I got to work with Lisa a lot. So anyway, uh, that is, that is a story of how you do what you got to do when you got to do it to grow your business, to grow your circles, uh, uh, and to learn what your strengths are and are not. And after that, I avoided on-camera appearances. <laughs>
2: When did you realize, what was the point when you realized that uh, half an hour um, shows were for you? You told us the formula, which is genius. You got twice the royalties in one hour, but what was the turning point? Was there a show that you became a part of
1: and it it clicked for you or when was that? Yes. About the same time that Seinfeld began, 1989, I got hired onto Who's the Boss and Married with Children as the staff, songwriter, music composer for both of these shows. And so now I'm making real royalties here. My my royalty statements are starting to add up. Foreign money is, is all pretty good. So I thought, hey, I'm on to something here. And then I the same studio created Who's the Boss and Married with Children, and they became really prolific, and I became their resident composer. So I did I don't know 10 12 shows during that period for this one studio for Columbia Pictures Television wow. and it was about the relationships again like you said they trusted me they knew my work ethic they had faith in my abilities and you know,
2: I mean, having faith in the abilities, it's incredible because when you come into a studio like that, um, a lot of people look at a studio and they say, wow, this studio is is so massive. And so, Jonathan, when they when people talk about studios, they think of the studios as being this massive, huge corporation But it seems like to me and what you're saying is you always saw these corporations as the people, the sum of the people inside of it. And if you could connect with the people and have the relationship with the people, then you could do business
1: with these corporations. Correct. Yeah. When I think of NBC, I think of Warren Littlefield and you know, ABC, Steve McPherson, like that, that these were the faces that I dealt with. And if I had enough hit shows on that particular network, then I didn't have to avoid making eye contact in the men's room with them.
2: <laughs> Jonathan, when you, when you did, when you got signed on, uh, for who's the boss and, uh, married with children, was there a connection point? And if there was, as far as relationship, can you take us back to maybe where that relationship started to understand the story and how that was, uh, that, that relationship was established?
1: They were both Columbia Pictures television shows. They shared a stage on the Gower lot. They shared a crew because one shot on Friday night and one shot on Tuesday night. Uh, There was a lot of incestuous crew sheets on those two shows. And so they were aware of what I did. And there came an episode of Married With Children for which they really needed a a songwriter. Uh, Up to that point, Married With Children really didn't have a lot of music, they didn't like music, they would prefer to have funny things coming out of people's mouths, and I did not disagree with that. But there was this episode, this was the era of We Are The World. And if you recall, you may have been too young, but at that time, We Are The World was a sweet, lovely song. And everybody who was important, everyone who was cool and hip and happening that year at the Grammys was on, we are the world. But if we're gonna be honest, we got a little tired of hearing it. You couldn't go into a bathroom or a gas station or grocery store without hearing that wonderful song. So Married With Children at the time had a job and that job was to lampoon any part of society that took itself too seriously. That job was later taken over by shows like South Park. Uh, But they called me and they said, we're going to spoof We Are the World, and we want you to write the song. We're going to invite all of those rock legends who did not get invited onto We Are the World. These are folks who were at Woodstock. These are giants of the industry, but they're not cool anymore because they're older. And they're going to sing your song. What do you say, Wolf? And so I said, man, you called the right guy. And I knew enough about Married With Children to know that there was no extra credit for subtleties. So I wrote this. Oh, it was a terrible song. Oh, it was brutal. It was called We Are The Old. And it was just full of, we need, please send money, we need your. It was for a telethon for old aging rockers. And there's a, please send money, we need your. We can't afford our bursitis pills and our alimony. It's, it, 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 our accountants took it all, help me, please. It was just brutal. And uh, all these giants, you know, Richie Haven and. Uh, Spencer Davis, Peter Noon, uh, Robbie Krieger, John Sebastian. People whom I admired. I mean everybody loves Richie Evans. And John Sebastian, I, when I first met him, I got I had to tell him that Welcome Back Cotter theme song in Welcome back, Cotter. Sing, theme song was uh,
2: just an incredible, incredible. It's it's um, unbelievable to be able to sit down with Hollywood royalty, with being able to hear, and being able to Jonathan, being able to hear some some of these stories. It, it's amazing. It, it 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 makes me laugh. You're uh, were you a Chappelle fan at all?
1: Yeah, that hey, Chappelle, Chappelle came later, but so. Uh, but sure. were you were and you a I Chappelle fan? Never had the fan? honor of working with him.
2: So, well, uh, Dave Chappelle had a, uh, had a skit that was Charlie Murphy and he said true Hollywood stories and Charlie Murphy would tell the true Hollywood stories about what was going on or the funny things that happened. Jonathan, I know you have a whole Bible of these. Can you share a couple of them with us as far as some of the, some of the funny things that have happened for you?
1: Sure. I mean, I am fully retired from Hollywood. So I have no reason to flatter anybody. <laughs> <laughs> all right, we'll finish that story. Uh, the, the first day on the, the set for We Are the Old, I went up to Ed O'Neill, who was Al Bundy. Uh-huh. And I introduced myself and said, I'm the songwriter. And uh, this song, you're gonna be singing this song with all these guys. and." I wrote an instrumental solo in the middle, which you're going to play on a pastrami sandwich. And he just nodded and walked away. <laughs> That's how cool Ed O'Neill is. He just, he didn't ask <laughs> questions. He just said, okay. okay. <laughs> And he killed it. By the way, I thought I was going to have to explain to him maybe how he could do it. Man, he 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 put that sandwich up to his face and like it was a harmonica or something, and he just wailed on it. Uh, so that that was my introduction to Married with Children. It was supposed to be a one-time assignment, just that one episode. Mm-hmm. Write the song, teach it to these rock legends, and. See you later. But everybody had such a good time uh, that I think on the shoot day, the exec said, We were wrong. We like having music on this show. Can we put you on our staff sheet? Wow. I said, Oh, absolutely. And so then from that point on, I was working on both Married with Children and Who's the Boss. Uh, so at least two nights a week, I had dinners. You know, because they feed the crew on shoot nights.
2: (laughs) So during this time, you're working simultaneously on Seinfeld. You're working on uh, Married with Children and Who's the Boss. So as Seinfeld starts to go, when do you realize we've got something on our hands here? Or do you realize it that is really going to change the fabric of Americana TV? I mean, it it really shaped every... I mean, Jonathan, I want to tell you this. I... I took off work early to see the finale of Seinfeld.
1: Yeah. There was a dip in the gross national product that week because of <laughs> Seinfeld. But when, when did you know it was going to catch or did you, did you see it? It was probably season four, season five. When we started first of all, for the first three seasons, we had no following. We had no time slot. It kept moving. Okay, we're on Tuesday nights now. Okay, we're on Friday nights now. So it really didn't have time to gain momentum. And the good news is it was kind of under the radar of a lot of advertisers and execs. So they kept giving us another chance and Warren Littlefield believed in the show. Uh, All right, here's a little story. You asked about an anecdote. Sometime during season two, I guess, I saddled up on stage next to Glenn Padnick, who was our boss. He was head of TV for Castle Rock. And I said, look, Glenn, I really like this show. I know we're not doing great in the ratings, but if, as the mouse said to the lion, if I can ever help you, let me know. And-
2: it's amazing because with Jonathan, Jonathan, you're in a place where you're willing and ready to do anything and everything, including, including trying to
1: help out. Continue on with this one. This one, I, I, I did, this one
2: just blew my mind. Like, you're- I, I
1: need I, I need to apologize to both you, Kelly, and to our listeners for these interruptions. There's something going on with our connectivity. All right, so uh, he kind of chuckled, and the next day I got a phone call from Glenn Padnick, the big boss. And he said, what do you know about making radio spots? And I went, dude. And so he sent Larry David and Jerry and Jason and Julia and Michael over to my studio. And Larry wrote little vignettes, little radio vignettes that they acted out on microphone, talking about, OK, well, we've got a new time slot now. And Larry made funny little jokes out of it. And we did four or five of them. And after you finish recording, that's when the engineer gets to work. You gotta format them, make sure they're the right time, the right format, you package them and label them and put them on special reels. And while I'm doing all that stuff, the guys are just hanging around. And the conversation was, wouldn't it be great if this show could actually catch on? We really like doing this show. And Larry's off in the corner being Larry. And Jason, who had mostly been cast as a villain, remember, he was in Pretty Woman. Mm -hmm. He was the bad guy in Pretty Woman. Uh, Tried to rape America's sweetheart, (laughs) Julie. And then he was in another movie, White Palace, where he was a bad guy. So he said offhandedly, I'm just happy that I've got a likable character now. And Larry, from the other side of the room, his ears perk up and he goes, what What? what was it? What did you say? And Jason said, well, I'm just glad that George Costanza is a you know, likable guy. And Larry says to nobody, like to himself, he says, I don't think so. And at that moment, George Costanza became this despicable despicable, awful, horrible, lying cheater that we know as George Costanza because he knew that Jason would somehow pull off this awful character and be likable. And it happened there at my studio. <laughs> it, it, it's
2: incredible. I was, uh, when I was working in Vegas, I had a, a client come through and her her husband was one of the uh, producers at one point with, um, with Seinfeld. And so he knew Jason, and my, me and my friends were inspired. My whole life is wrapped around Seinfeld. And we used to practice Festivus every year. We would come through and do the airing of grievances, everything like that. And my brother wrote out a, um, a invitation to Festivus, and he, he's a good artist. Wow. He did the thing. Well, I showed it to her. She took it and took it to Jason. Jason signed it and sent it back uh, with her the next time when she came back uh, through. So so cruel. So talk to us too, Jonathan, about the characters in it. I mean, uh, Julia Dreyfus. I mean, unbelievable character. Jerry uh, Kramer, my favorite. Um, Costanza. Were you seeing these develop, um, you know, and and what sure. parts of the shows were true and things that you saw
1: happen? Uh, I was there a fair amount, especially starting season four. Mm-hmm. When the first of all, I need to interrupt this answer to ask you: who is who is your friend who was a producer on the show? Her her last name
2: was Shapiro, which narrows it down in Hollywood. Um, but her. Be last... sure that wasn't you. Sure that wasn't George Shapiro's daughter. It might have been either
1: wife, ex-wife, or uh, you okay. know. Yeah. Yeah, because I don't think we had a producer named Shapiro except. The great, mighty, powerful, wonderful, sweet, kind George Shapiro. Okay, so there, there... and he's the kind of guy who would do what you described. Who would take a, you know, something.
2: And see, what was crazy is I didn't know. I didn't know. I just sat with the lady and we talked about it. And she said that her husband had done some done some work with Seinfeld. And I, when I told her the story about George Costanza, and I told her about uh, the story of, um, you know, when I told her uh, this, this woman about, uh, you know, us loving Seinfeld and the, the uh, festivus and practicing it and airing of grievances and all these things. It wasn't that because I had been always taught I'm, I'm never in the ask for from somebody is I was just telling her the story and she offered that up. And then when it came back, all my friends were blown away um, that, you know, Jason Alexander had actually done that, um, you know, done any, that for any chance
1: us. that that person was named Amy. Because uh, George Shapiro's personal assistant for many years was Amy Hyatt, and she's the type who would. Okay. volunteer something like that sweet sweet it's been uh, it's so been right, years, let me but... tell you my, yeah. my festivist story yeah very first of all when that when that episode came up uh, i asked dan o'keefe uh we're we gonna have need for festivus carols like festivist songs because uh, i'd be happy to do that and that answer was no uh, but there is a, since you're a Seinfeld guy, and I'm hoping some of your listeners are, there's a close talker Festivus connection. Follow me here. The close talker was played by Judd Reinhold. No relation to Festivus, right? Mm-hmm. Festivus, as most people know, was a real holiday celebrated in the O'Keefe home. Dan O'Keeffe's dad, it was a very interesting, weird childhood they had. Their house was just really strange. And he created this real holiday that became a joke around the writer's room. And somebody, I think Larry Charles said, Dan, write the episode. So uh, it's a real thing. Now, Dan, has a brother named Mark O'Keefe, also a writer, who wrote a series called The O'Keeffe's about the strange, weird, wonderful, adventurous childhood in the O'Keefe family. He hired me to be the composer for the show, but the dad, the one who played Dan and Mark's father, Judge Reinholdt, <laughs> so that's the connection. That was a long, I had to lay a lot of pipe to get no, to that. Sorry.
2: But John, Jonathan too, like when I look at your career, I mean, you're, you're the, you're the best at what you do. And you, you know, you're the, at the top of the food chain in, in what it is that you do, you locked into it. You went, um, what made you make the decision to retire and step out of it? I mean, you still got a lot of life left. I mean, you're at, again, at the top of the game. Um, what what was the
1: contributing factors there? You started to do the math for this answer. You don't get 75 series by doing them one at a time. I was at any time doing between 10 and 14 episodes a week because that's how many series I had going sometimes at the same time. So I had no time to sleep and... Um, It's really good for business, but not good for my home life. Mm. My wife and I, boy, we just kept having way too many kids. And those kids needed me more than Hollywood needed more of my music. So at some point, my wife and I picked a date. This was in the year 2000. And at this point, we had four kids. Um, And we planned to be married a long time. So, you know, (laughs) Uh, in 2000, we announced I'm retiring. Five years, everybody. Five years. People that worked for me, my clients, the studios, everybody. Five years. Five years imagine if
2: you know those of you out there listening if you took five years right now and you said hey in five years i'm out imagine how much fortitude that takes for that to be able to happen so you say five years
1: yeah and uh during those five years my staff had an excellent staff of brilliant music and office professionals. Uh, We decided who's going to stay with me to the end Mm -hmm. and who wants to get launched. Mm -hmm. And those who wanted to get launched, I got them jobs elsewhere. And sometimes they were composer jobs. Somebody should, you know, calls would come in and I'd say, this would be a really good job for Brett. Brett, you take that job, you're launched now. Um, And, but after five years, we all knew which of my people were going to inherit which clients, because we had already established that relationship. So that when I left, it was it was smooth and I could just back away and go into Hollywood witness protection and focus on, I knew that my clients were in good hands. I only hired employees who were better than me. They were more skilled, more talented, annoying. These people were so good. And the reason I hired them was because I would say to them, someday, you're gonna kick my butt. And when that happens, I want you working for me and I'll help you do it. So I left my clients in good hands. Mm -hmm. And when 2005 arrived, it was a little bit sad to walk away from a couple of these shows that had been good to me, Will & Grace, actually picked up another year. I had scheduled it to end with Will & Grace, which was a really fun job for me because I got to play a lot of very naughty piano on Will & Grace. (laughs) Um, But they got this other year and they called up and they said, you're gonna stay for the next year, aren't you? And I went, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. I've given you enough music you hire my music editor and you hire this guy and you can still get to me through them. Uh, so I had to leave Will & Grace, but they understood and wished me well. They threw me a lovely retirement party on set. Uh, Reba, man, did I love working for Reba McIntyre. She is as awesome as you think she is, Kelly. Uh, when the day she hired me, uh, weird. you know, she had already said, I want you. I want you to be the music guy for the TV show, Reba. And I said, well, I have something to disclose to you, Reba, that I hope does not have a negative effect on the next 10 seconds. I'm retiring in two years. I'll take really good care of you. You'll be in great shape and my replacement will be better than me. And she thought about it for a second. She went, wait, wait, did you just say two years? I Yeah. She goes, oh, honey, I hope I'm still working in two months. (laughs) And she meant it. It was a sincere lesson in humility. She realized, and she explained it. She says, a woman of a certain age, we become invisible or dispensable And I don't know how long I'm going to be able to ride this wave. So I'll take you for those two years. What a gem. What a wonderful, amazing artist. And so for those, I was sad to say goodbye to that, but she also wished me well and let me use her hockey tickets because she wasn't using them she was in hollywood and and i asked her uh, so you still got those hockey tickets you know cuz anytime you watch a predators game she's there at the glass and she we were at a she was having a little birthday party for herself and i and i said yeah i'll take those tickets and her husband at the time he overhears it and turns around and goes honey no not the hockey tickets <laughs>
2: so uh, Jonathan what is the uh, you know when you when you're dealing in these realms I think it's so great to hear that you know hey I've got two years it's so great to hear like what Reba's mentality was you know when you say hey I got two years you're thinking you're uh, you know you're kind of bracing for impact she says no I'm (laughs) you know if I'm still relevant in two months let's sh- let's and ship she, get- and oh, she
1: meant it she she truly yeah. was that humble well Jonathan Amazing.
2: also also too like talk to us about the um the advantages of choosing your family because I think a lot of times people that are in it and they've got the uh my 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 wife refers to it, and I have to be very careful with this word um but my wife said it, so I'm allowed to say it she called it hustle porn. And what she meant by that is that we're a lot of times taught that you have to just be hustling, hustling. And when someone calls you and you say you're busy, it's almost a badge of honor, as opposed to slowing down and realizing what's really, truly important. And, and you did that. Um, what was the advantages of taking that time and, and focusing it on your wife and on your kids?
1: after 29 years of participating in that hustle porn mentality, uh, it was time for me to focus on more important things. People say that there's no such thing as enough money. Uh, My wife, whose name is Steffi, and I decided to challenge that. There's enough money. However much money we have, whatever my royalty catalog is, That'll be enough. And we moved to a simple life in Kentucky mm-hmm. where I became a full-time PTA room parent, sports coach, volunteer, field trip chaperone. And it was good. As far as writing new music, it was somebody else's turn. <laughs> Jonathan, when when Seinfeld did...
2: Uh, comedians in cars uh, having coffee. Do people like that, that uh, relationship, did they did they try and pull you back in?
1: Uh, Jerry is fully aware and respects my retired status, but there were a number of people who did not. Okay. You know, did... they, they, they would call my lawyer and say, oh, no, we need him for this. This show is special. It's a once-a-century show no it's not it's not special (laughs) it's just another tv show so i said no a lot all right here's a larry David story since you like the stories curb happened as i was facing the exit Mm. i had already announced and curb your and i started getting materials from curb your enthusiasm scripts breakdowns crew sheets schedules that kind of stuff. And I noticed that my name was on the cruise sheet. No one had called me about it. No one had hired me. And I called my lawyer and said, do you know anything about this? Nope. Uh, so I just did nothing because, I don't know, no one had hired me for it. I figured it was a mistake. I, until they started sending me cuts, mm. actual video, which at the time was on videotapes, physical yeah videos. Um, And that crossed a line. Even though I had no relationship with HBO, I knew that that was proprietary material that HBO would prefer not having in the hands of people that had not yet signed a non-disclosure agreement with them. My entire business plan was based on earning royalties. Mm. HBO did not pay the level of royalties that NBC, ABC, and CBS did, so it was not a real desirable assignment for me. And if have you ever seen Curb? Oh yeah,
2: I have seen it. Um, uh, You know, I've. I'm more of a fan of Seinfeld, um, but Curb is uh, <laughs> Curb has some uh, points in it and some uh, areas in it that are. I mean, Curb has some places in it, uh, Jonathan. Uh, honestly, like it's it. There's some funny, definitely some funny things. I was more of a Seinfeld guy than uh, than a Curb, but uh, you know, I have caught yeah. on to Curb a little bit.
1: So Larry, in real life, is only comfortable if you are not. (laughs) So he would find ways of picking meaningless fights and arguments with people just to mine comedy out of it. And I really, you know, I'd had enough, it was fine. I worked with Larry after Seinfeld, by the way. Uh Uh, This is something those of us on Sour Grapes have agreed to not discuss it further (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so I I do what nobody wants to do. I called Larry David and said, Hey, it's Wolf. Um, Hey, thanks for sending me all this stuff. I'm pleased that you entrust me with your new show. It looks really great. You are really funny. This show is going to last a long time, Larry, but I am not. I'm about to retire. Can I help you get a different composer? And Larry can be willfully obstinate. He can pretend ignorance. He goes, what do you mean? no, well, no, you'll be great. Don't worry, it'll be great. I'm glad to have you aboard. I went, no, Larry, let me, let me be clear. Um, I can't do the show. What do you say, Wolf? What are you saying? What, what's going on? What's the problem? You need more money? What the, and I went, Larry, just, for clear communication. I hope this is not offensive, but I'm going to put it in stark terms. I am no longer your composer. I don't work for you anymore. I'm never going to write a single note for curb your enthusiasm, but I'm happy to help you get somebody else. And he paused for a moment and is on the phone. And he says, but you thought I was going to hire you. I wouldn't hire you. You're a hack. <laughs> so I said, well, I'm glad we agree on that. Um, then I guess that means I don't need to recommend to anybody. and what do you want me to do with all these proprietary materials that you sent to the hack in <laughs> <he hung> <laughs> that, the young? That's the last time I talked to LD but you know, not that he's he was never mad. He's, he never gets I've never seen him actually mad. Yeah. He just acts like he's mad. <laughs> so
2: so jonathan i started the podcast because of my kids uh i maddox, maddox who's uh 11 years old just about to be 12 just started sixth grade my daughter is 14 years old just started high school um so i've got a middle schooler and i got a high schooler now but when i started the podcast what i wanted to do is i i, I was always very conscious with them i never wanted them to worship idols Um, whether it be music, entertainment, um, you know, any, any type of celebrity, I never wanted them to worship idols. I wanted them to be inspired by icons like yourself. So what advice would you have for Maddox and McKenna? And
1: if you could use both their names, it would be awesome. Maddox and McKenna. Nice to meet you both. I'm so proud of you. Your dad speaks highly of you. And I look forward to meeting you in person. I agree with you, Kelly. Hollywood, there's this weird thing. And I'll just use a couple of examples. These are not specific because I'm sure these are perfectly nice people. But their parents named them Frank Sinatra Jr. and Quincy Jones III. It's a thing in Hollywood that offspring are expected to follow in footsteps. I intentionally did not name our kids like that. And in fact, we made a point of not giving them music lessons when they were young, until we could make our great escape. We did not want
2: unbelievable to be able to sit with an icon like this like uh, jonathan even though we've had the technical difficulties
1: i'm back now I, again i apologize for <laughs> oh you're good this problem is you're okay uh, and uh i guess there was a selfish component to that decision also that working 16 18 hours a day the last thing i wanted to do was to come home and Go to a Suzuki recital, but um, once we were safely in Kentucky, of course, all the kids took music lessons, and if they wanted to pursue a career, they could build it for themselves. Like the song goes, "Grow some funk of your own," uh, and that was kind of how we did. Even when two of our two of my kids are identical twins, uh, they were born is tiny little perfect identical twins i knew a lot of casting folks i worked with probably the the top casting folks in television and i got calls from almost all of them saying you want to work these kids because babies can only be on screen for so many seconds or minutes it's the law so you use one twin for you know the 60 seconds that you name for, swap them out, and bring in the other twin. So twins are in high demand. And I my wife and I just said, No way. Take me off your list. That is mm-hmm. simply never gonna happen. We are never gonna hand our precious baby twins to a stranger to hold. Mm-hmm don't care who the actor is. Um, My advice to your kids is uh, listen to your folks, have a good time, play Little League, play sports, do art, do whatever makes your heart happy. Pursue your childhood with enthusiasm the way your dad pursues his life. I've seen him speak. Do that, and decide for yourself what you want to be and who you want to be, and hopefully, I'll be able to follow your you long enough to see it come happen, and I will cheer for you,
2: Jonathan. You have been absolutely phenomenal, and uh, you know, and the way that you've been able to. Well, I mean, we started off with some technical difficulties, which was completely fine. This is the way that life is. And what I love about it is you have showed through every aspect of it the consistency and the congruency of your message of the relationship uh, part of it, working hard through things that sometimes aren't don't look the greatest, but... You truly are a master at your craft, and it has been an absolute honor and, and pleasure. I am so humbled to be able to uh, sit with you and spend time. But I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to force you to be my friend for the rest of your life so you can't get away from me. Deal. And I'm going to tell you. I may
1: call on you for some advice also. <laughs> um, I I am My kids now, if you did the math correctly, they're all grown. Mm-hmm. They have their own careers. They're all, they're doing fine on their own. They don't need me 24 seven. And even when they were went to college, it was embarrassing if I showed up at school to hand out glue sticks and cupcakes. So <laughs> when they went to college, I became a college lecturer Wow! and started doing that first at their schools and then word got out. And so I've done a lot of college lecturing. I've lectured at every Ivy League school and all of the top music conservatories. Uh, When that parlayed into what you do, professional public speaking, Uh, I bring a totally different vibe. I've seen your vibe, high energy, inspiration, motivation. People leave your presentation
2: it's, it's incredible to hear edifying words from, uh, from, a, um, from a master at what he does, from an absolute legend. Um, I've got a huge smile on my face right now. Um,
1: you you change their lives by your message. Um, some of your guests, I listened to a few of your episodes, same thing. Brilliant folks with powerful messaging, by the way notice there was none of that today uh, <laughs> no there was a lot of that today but um so now i do uh, some professional corporate public speaking oh i do gosh. mostly from the piano i sit at the wow. piano and i tell stories kind of like what we did today i bring the hollywood i talk about seinfeld and jerry and i lurk in with larry i take q a and it's not inspirational as you are, but it's entertaining and fun. So I look to pros like you, people who have done it for a while and have a following, uh, to learn from your example on how I can put your best practices to use in my corporate public speaking. I mostly do non-profit, Mm -hmm. Mm not-for-profit events. Uh, I, I don't really need money, and this is a good way for me to volunteer to give wow. back. So, I I'm going to be have you in my head <laughs> the next time I take the stage. Well, I, t- I tell
2: you, it would, be, it would be my honor, my pleasure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm humbled you even saying that. But I, I tell you, I, I am available to you. And I have, we have something that in the future, what I would love to be able to do when you said you do it from the piano, we actually created the podcast live, which is called The Vibrum. And we've got our next one, October fifteenth. Um, we've got um, you probably know him. You know, probably know Larry Namer from uh, from Hollywood. Um, but Larry Namer was the uh, founder of E Entertainment Network. Um, but uh, we've got him. We've got Thorough Bailey, and we've got a, a musical artist called uh, named Damian Horn. So so many people were asking about the podcast and like of uh, guests like you. They were like, how could I ever be in the studio, a fly on the wall, to be able to meet Jonathan? Well, we created <laughs> an, an environment. It's called the Vibe Room, where we have a studio audience and we do the podcast live. And I would be honored in the future to have you as a guest at the Vibe Room. This would be
1: unbelievable to be able Thank to. Thank you. Oh, be, that would be fun. Be... October fifteenth of this year.
2: No, no, no. I'll that be... that one's already set. That one's set. But I'm okay, just talking good. about future. So, I'm, I'm just talking future. Got plans. Out the. Yeah, I know you have. You're a busy man. Sure. But I mean, sure. I'm we'll just talking future. What
1: connections you need? Do you do you have it connected through ISDN? How do you do that that connectivity? So we do uh, we do it actually.
2: Uh, this this next one is going to be in Salt Lake City. We have a speakeasy jazz club. You can imagine. Oh, it's in person. It's in person, and okay. it is unbelievable. And it would be great to have you in person someday.
1: You know, sure. And because we're going to be friends for life. Yeah. And, hey, if it's a cool place like Salt Lake City. Count me in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll bring my wife and uh, we'll hang out and we will do a, an in-person vibe room. Yes, sir. Is that what it's called? Vibe yeah. room?
2: The vibe room. All right. Yeah. I'm,
1: I'm going to make a note on my calendar. Uh, I will be at a fitness retreat that week, but I. And is it live or do you? We do we do it live. I don't know that we're going to be broadcasting
2: it, um, but we will. I'll send you the footage because we're filming it. My brother's a filmmaker, so he's mm-hmm. coming in. And uh, because we're we're filming the vibe room is um, we're working it into being like a TV show. Because what I wanted it to be is like the Ooh. the heart of Oprah, the intellect of David Letterman, and the uh, comedy of Jimmy Fallon, and to be able to hit all senses that way. So I get it. That that
1: sounds really cool. All right, count me in.
2: Well, Jonathan, you you have been honestly way better than advertised. You're an an incredible (laughs) human being, and I I tell you, for me, it's such an honor to not only from the things that you do, but the person that you are, and the fact that I get a new friend and I have a friend in Jonathan Wolf now for the rest of my life and the rest of your life. I'm going to, I'm going to force that. So, um, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank all our sponsors. I want to thank every one of you out there, uh, that has been listening, uh, to the, to the podcast. Um, Jonathan, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor and I thank you so much, uh, for being on the show. The honor is
1: all mine and I appreciate your kind words, Kelly, me and you, we're not done yet. <laughs> We're
2: not done. We're not done. You're officially off the hot seat. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Bye.